0: Hey, uh, I'm excited again that um, we're getting together here to uh, study the book of Hebrews. And actually today, for those who've been joining us and been here all summer, you note that today we will actually be finalizing uh, our study in the book of Hebrews. We'll cover chapter 13, our final chapter. Uh, And so that's an exciting thing as we kind of get to see where all this hard work and study is leaning up to in these final conclusions. And I will also take this moment to apologize for those who maybe it's your first time coming with us uh, or you're just checking us out um, because we're going to be flying through a lot of things just to hit the highlights of chapter 13. And a lot of it's going to be the things we skip over are going to be uh, some assumptions that we've already dealt with uh, in kind of the material at hand, right? Any good conclusion, uh, the author is going to bring back those elements he's introduced and bring them together. And so there are going to be some things that maybe feel rushed or maybe feel skipped over. Uh, And that's a lot because we've already dealt with some of those things. Um, But hopefully, uh, you can can catch up. And uh, for those who are first guests, and really for all of us, I think it's important that we're going to start with kind of our conversations with two things. The first thing we're going to start our conversation with um, is kind of a reminder of what we learned so hard, kind of an overview. So hopefully, that can catch some people back up to speed who haven't been here, or remind us all who have been going through this. uh, Because it's going to be important for us to remember all of those building blocks to see the importance. Uh, of the the proclamation of the end of the chapter. Also, the second thing that uh, we're going to do as we start this conversation is a little bit more on a somber note, and John's already kind of mentioned it before, but we're going to make a small reflection on uh, culture and on the the, the, uh, situations that are surrounding us today. Uh, Because again, I think with that comment on culture and the refresher of the backstories both should help us in setting the tone that is for necessary application for the text that we hear and its driving force in our lives. So let's start with the first one. So where are we in this journey? Uh, Again, the main theme of the whole book of Hebrews is represented by our sermon graphic again is that Jesus is greater than, that he is superior. Um, It was probably about week eight into the sermon series where I had a student come up to me and be like, oh, I get it, the little arrow, math joke. All right, I'm with you, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, that's good. I'll pray for you. Let's uh, let's go forward." <laughs> no, the uh, that this is something. It's not original to us. It's one that's tons and tons of pastors when they preach through this, choose this as the uh, uh, as the way to represent the theme because it really is time and time again. What we're going to see throughout this entire book is that Jesus is superior. Everything else that you knew before. It's all pointing to him. Everything else you know now, he's far greater than. And he will actually take that greatness and solve everything that is to come. Jesus is greater than, he is far superior. Another helpful thing that we got to remind ourselves of is that original audience. Again, um, the, the author here is a Jewish to Christian convert who is writing to other Jews who have converted to Christianity, telling them not to walk back, not to drift away, not to return to the rituals uh, or rites. Of of the Jewish faith, but to remember that despite persecution, despite all that's coming to face you, your call for Christ is paramount and most essential for you to live rightly. Uh, I, I appreciated uh, the way that a, a scholar, Dr. Walker, Walker Martin, uh, chose to phrase it, so I shared it with you this morning. The book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling Hebrews to stop acting like Hebrews, right? This is what we are getting at. And again, why, why, does, why does this theme, why does the, uh, the, the original audience need to remember that it isn't these things that we came from that we need to return to, but why do we need to hold on to the truths of Christ and in a life of following after him? And I think the main setting for that comes across in an environment of persecution, this original audience, and that they're being persecuted for their faith. We're going to see even in today's passage, those who are imprisoned, uh, many of whom for their faith are being imprisoned. Um, I think a a good theme verse to help us encapsulate this in the book of Hebrews was one that we considered a couple weeks ago in chapter 10, verse 23 to 24, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works. I think this is a good theme verse for everything that, that the author is presenting. And so how does he present it? How does he choose his argument? Well, this is also something that we talked about, especially into chapter two. You may remember this graph uh, that the author moves constantly between uh, kind of comments of exposition where he's explaining and moving into sections, brief little sections of exhortation. Now, did did we get the graph again? Oh, that's totally my bad. Not David's fault. Everybody can say, David, it's not your fault. Paul, it's your fault. I, I had to do this first service too, and so we scrambled in the middle trying to get it up there, but it's my fault. I didn't get the graph up there. So close your minds. Picture the graph, right? We all see the graph. That's easy, right? But no, the entire time that we worked through Hebrews, we were moving from this exposition, the explaining of truth, to its exhortation, the encouraging to rightly live in response to that truth. Um, John Piper actually describes this theme throughout Hebrews of this movement back and forth as a, a vast and solid valley in which we can see a firm foundation based on core doctrines we need to understand. Intermixed with that valley, these sharp little upturns of exhortation where Christian living has to match what we proclaim in our Christian lives, our Christian faith. Another way of putting it uh, or to think about it is we must, to summarize it all, we must know what is true, we must hold to what is true, and we must act on what is true. We can't just take one of those and not the others. They need to be tied together. We must know what is true, we must hold to what is true, and we must act on what is true. A Messianic uh, Jewish uh, acquaintance of mine explained it once like this, uh, and, and as he summarized kind of some stereotypes over American Christianity and relating to the original Jewish culture at the time, he said, you know, too oftentimes American Christianity is concerned with knowing what the rabbi knows, whereas the Jews were concerned with doing what the rabbi does. I found great conviction, even personal conviction in that, uh, was knowing how oftentimes I want to settle with the first part of the equation. I just want to know the truth, and maybe even I can hold to that truth, but it's a far leap, and this morning we're going to talk about what it means to act on that truth. And we've seen this, again, this movement back and forth of the exposition to exhortation, um, just even the highlights in chapter 1, God revealed himself in various ways, but Jesus was a greater messenger. Spends all of chapter 1 to do that. Just so in four verses, he can say, listen to him. That's the exhortation. Then the rest of the end of chapter 2 is that God works for our salvation. And that Jesus is the completion of that. The one who put it rightly. And he does all of that so that at the end of four, 3 and the beginning of 4, you can say, so consider. That's, that's the exhortation. Consider Jesus. Verses four and five walks through uh, what we'll touch on even a part of today, how, how God used high priests and how Jesus was the ultimate, the fulfillment of the institution of high priests, and he stands as our high priest today. So five and six was don't, don't apostate, don't turn away, recognize him as your high priest and have that access he grants. Then we see the huge bulk in chapter 6 through 7, the biggest part of the exposition where we get themes over and over of, of uh, how Jesus is better than Melchizedek, how Jesus is a better covenant, how Jesus' sacrifice was better than any other, thus the calling for the end of the temple sacrifices, all of that so that at the end of chapter 10, he can say, so have faith, have faith. And then that's what we got into the exposition only a couple weeks ago, chapter 11, with the Hall of Faith, our Hall of Fame, let us look back onto those who've gone before us so that we can be encouraged. And then when he ends with what Dr. Wayne Broderick brought so faithfully to us last week in chapter 12, and what we will consider today, is that in, so what do we do with that faith? How do we know what is true? How do we hold to what is true? And how do we act on what is true? Now another thing, the second thing I said I wanted to mention before we dove into the Texas Day was this cultural comment, because we've had a lot going on in our country, right, this past week, especially on the heels of the tragedy in Charlottesville. You know, we had discussions, um, even amongst the staff, how do we address this? And we had questions even from members, uh, are you going to address this? And even personally, I had to deal with what does it look like to address this topic? And while this will set, I know a somber uh, tone, I think it is one that is appropriate uh, because I, there, are, there are two things that in dealing with how to address this that struck me. Um, and the first was, was one, just kind of the, the personal conviction of a shame that for so many churches and places that it takes such a, a grievous act before we finally proclaim and denounce evil for what evil is and truth for what truth is. And that's something that is a conviction I'll have to hold with it. The other hard thing about talking about a lot of this is because uh, what I don't want to do is I don't want to take what is rightly presented in the original context and what the, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get the message and his conclusion across. And I want to unjustly stretch those illustrations or point back to this one event unnecessarily that the text isn't, isn't being the most faithful to talk to that, whether it's trying to talk about a different agenda. I want the text's agenda to be the one that we consider this morning. But I do think it's still worth mentioning and it's still worth proclaiming because I think when we, have a, when we deal with this, one, with the acknowledgement of the proclamation of truth and calling out evil for what evil is, and then the second thing, following up when we are prepared to make such a proclamation, I think we also have to consider a warning about what making such a proclamation can lead to and the temptations that can come. Now, that second part isn't to undo the first part. I think the first part is paramount, But I think if we leave it at the first part alone, we could miss the second part. And I think the second part about how do we fit into the equation will prepare our hearts and our minds especially well to hear from Hebrews. Because again, make no mistake, whether it's white supremacy in Charlottesville, whether it's the terrorist attacks in Barcelona, whether it's police shootings across our country, whether it is abortion and eugenics practice to discriminate against the disabled or the elderly, All of these things are a sin issue. They're a sin problem. And the only answer to a sin problem is a gospel solution. Amen? Amen. I think the only answer to a sin problem is a gospel solution. So let's do this. Let's acknowledge sin for what it is. And let's remember to not neglect our gospel response. So yes, when we consider concepts in the Nonsense ideologies of the alt right movement and of racial superiority, of neo Nazism, of radical nationalism. We have to understand that these are evil, that they are deprived, they are horrendous acts based on an egregious sin. you know, for racism stands against a core concept of the Christian doctrine that we all understand that humanity is created to bear the image of God. And so when anybody takes a stance trying to lower or alter the right or privilege of one person to be a greater image bearer than another or that dismissing one to not be an image bearer, then they are going against the Christian faith as we know it. They are... Va- they are violating that that core concept i think this is why so many christians are rightly outraged and i honestly honestly think this is why the vast majority whether they're christian or not respond and look at this situation with outrage as well because that echo of truth lies within all of us god created us to bear his image and so to go against that is wrong And especially those who take that message and try to claim Christ within it and point to it as a part of the gospel, then that is heresy. And their just reward will be found in judgment with their father. But I don't think we can just sit at that one concept alone. For when we make such a proclamation and call evil for what it is and call truth for what it is, then we also have to recognize recognize where do we play in that picture? Where does humanity play? What is our role even in that? Because yes, whereas we share together an image of all, of of reflecting God amidst all humanity, we also share in the brokenness of that image. We also share and acknowledge that humanity no longer reflects God as originally created, and that was sin that brought that. The mirror does not reflect rightly anymore because sin is in our lives, and we have to deal with that sin. And we have to understand and acknowledge that that is real and a part of this message. Because here's the danger and here's the warning is because where we so often and easily can see this horrendous, these horrendous acts and call it out for what it is, the temptation then also follows then of how much easier is it for us to just say, that's those people, that's that problem, that's their issue. And leave it stopping at that, where we just return to the comfort of our homes and the safety behind our screens. Where we proclaim against them, but forget that the call is not for they have sinned and fallen short, but for we. It can't just be about they and them. It has to be also about we. So it's very easy for me to look at the newsfeed and declare myself above the selfish and evil spirits that drive what is happening there. But I need to also stop and ask, am I willing to take responsibility for my own selfishness right where I am? I do not need to let the evil that is, was demonstrated in Charlottesville become a blanket to cover my own dark heart. We are very much also the problem. If we're going to respond to sin for what sin is, then we can't pick and choose the sins that are acceptable and the ones that aren't. And whereas it's so easy to just look at those and them, we need to also be asking about I. And where do I play into this picture? And we're going to see that even as we go into Scripture today because we're going to start with a section that lists sins. Um, And it's going to be, things are going to pop into your mind easily. where you are going to say, yeah, yeah, I know that person. Or I know who really lives this out. And it's going to want to tempt you to dismiss that and say, but what, is I, what am I really doing in it? Let me do this in a way of kind of prayerfully pulling our thoughts back together. Um, before we dive into God's word, let me, let me read a, a, a hymn, O God of Every Nation, written by William Reed Jr. back in 1958. Um, and I think it is, of course, very apt. I'm only going to read the first two uh, stanzas of it. Um, you can look up the last two. Namely, I'm not going to read the last one because I can't can't get through it without crying, so that's maybe motivation to consider. But let's let's say these words as a prayer. O God of every nation, of every race and land, redeem the whole creation with your almighty hand. Wherever hate and fear divide us, and bitter threats are hurled, and love and mercy guide us to heal our strife-torn world. From search for wealth and power, and scorn of truth and right, from trust in bombs that shower destruction through the night... From pride of race and station and blindness to your way, deliver every nation, eternal God, we pray. Let us know what is right, let us hold to what is right, and let us act on what is right through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, if that wasn't heavy enough, now let's transition into God's words where we spend the first five verses being affronted with sin. Something uh, that's never comfortable or easy to talk about. Um, so open up your copies of God's Word or turn them on and navigate over to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. The, the section we're going to talk about today, verses 1 um, through about 19, actually exists kind of in two different parts that probably the original audience saw again because it starts with 1 through 6, which is these moral directions, and then it moves from after establishing these moral directions into kind of these religious instructions. This is very familiar to the audience because this is the way the Mosaic Law was structured. Um, And so let's do that. Let us us look and remember first the importance of knowing our own moral instructions, our own moral plight in this equation before we can see rightly the religious instructions in answer to the call. Uh, Look down in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me. These are the very words of our Lord. So from a sin standpoint, and that's how we're going to address this, we're going to first look at the traits of sins. From a sin standpoint, we have five commands right off the bat, acknowledging that it is a sin to hate your brother, it is a sin to neglect hospitality, Uh, that it is the exhortation to not forget those in prison, to, to not be sexually immoral, to not be greedy. Now, of course, I phrased all those in the negative. The author phrases some in the positive, some in the negative, but it's oftentimes more helpful for me to... To see the actual call to sin and its pervasiveness when I form it in that negative, that the failure to do the good call is also just as much as the failings that come from choosing the wrong. And what may seem like a random list at first, and was again full of all kinds of imagery uh, that, they, that the original audience would have related to. Now, we might relate to some imagery that might come to mind. I mean, there in the very beginning about hospitality, you know, for any child of the 90s like myself, it probably reminds you of a blonde, long-haired newsboy, you know, singing about entertaining angels, right? But they, they wouldn't have seen that. They, would have, they couldn't have read that and not missed uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew and then the reflection uh, on Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham showed hospitality and was entertaining those angels unaware, messengers of God. It's kind of a cool thing to even think about out of all the different ways that we can Knowing that angels in the, word, the root of the word, word really means messengers. Anytime we show hospitality to messengers, we're showing hospitality potentially to angels. Kind of a cool thing. Or again, if we continue through the list of, of sins, we have the remembering those in prison. You know, culturally today, we can do that as well. You know, Mike Benedetti, our finance officer um, down, that is located at downtown campus, finance officer over both uh, churches for us. He is so faithful in following the voice of the martyr's ministry. And always an encouragement uh, to me to remember to pray for those who are suffering around the world uh, for their faith. Yet this, again, was a different thing to the original audience because it was on their front door. It was most practically seen uh, because it's actually a lot of times in Roman captivity and Roman imprisonment, uh, the prisoner's family and friends were the suppliers of the basic needs. It wasn't part of the prison system or the place that they were being jailed. It was that friends and family had to show up with food or the prisoner would have no food. They had to provide basic necessities oftentimes just for the sustaining of life during their imprisonment. And even the pairing of sexual immorality and greed back to back may seem like an odd thing for us, but uh, this was reflected in the way the Jewish people taught about it of the day. It's reflected in several New Testament passages that links these two. I think there's a lot of insight even into that. But let's ask this question. Why start with this list of sins? Why start with this? I think it's because we need to rightly understand, we need to rightly understand the severity of sin so that we know our desperation and need for a Savior. I think we need to rightly understand what we have been saved from so that we demonstrate and live lives contrary to that as good ambassadors of Christ his message so a couple things that I want to pull from these first five verses all related to the traits of sin we're going to look at the traits of sin first one is that sin isn't unobservable there's a lot of negatives in that but sin is observable sin is not something private and quiet that we can hide and that nobody else can see it's a lie it's a lie I lie to myself. It's a lie we all lie together. So we think our sins are only kind of something that we can kind of cur- curl down into this corner and hide from everybody else, but they are observable. I mean, think about it very practically in our first three. If we fail to show brotherly love to others, who notices? Our brothers. If we fail to show hospitality, who notices? Potentially Angels. If we fail to take food to those in prison, who suffers? The prisoner. These are noticeable things. They have an affront that is public in nature. Now, some of us may want to pause and say, well, I don't know. Good thing we got the last two. We got kind of this idea of sexual misconduct and this one of this love for money. Good thing those aren't the observable ones. Those are the ones I can kind of hide. But that's a mistake too. Because another observation that we can see of the traits of sin is that sins aren't individual. Sins aren't unobservable because sins also aren't individual. Much in the same way that the first three had an effect on others, a cultural implication. This is what verses 4 and 5 clearly get at as well. Specifically in in verse 4 when it speaks of the marriage bed. Needing to be held in honor by all. For a lot of my life, even as single, I thought, yeah, yeah, this is something for later. So students, when you think, oh, yeah, I don't have to think about this because it's I'm not married yet. No, 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 no. Marriage bed needs to be held in higher by all. And even now, even in the unmarried or to the married, both of them, when they practice sexual misconduct, when they look at things they aren't supposed to look at, when they do things they aren't supposed to do, when they do that in the conference of either being married or pre-marriage. What they are doing is they are defiling the marriage bed. It's not def- you're defiling your marriage bed or even your marriage bed to come. The Greek is very specific here. E koite, it is, there is a pronoun, the corporate marriage bed is the picture here. But all, when we choose sexual misconduct, what we are doing is we are defiling the marriage bed of the person sitting next to us. We're defiling the marriage bed of the person in front of us. We're defiling the marriage bed of the person across the room. This is a corporate institution. Sins aren't individual. They have a corporate consequence. Even the love of money, right, in verse 5. And the reminder that Jesus is enough. When you forget that, when you choose that Jesus isn't enough and you need money to fill in that gap, then what you're doing is you are not reflecting a right witness. And this brings us to our third point, all sins affect our witness. You know, Jim Dennison in his um, articles and forums of truth as he deals with cultural engagements, he he, um, recently had an article reflecting on some current events um, and asked him key questions that I think was important, especially in this aspect of our witness. He started citing these different things that were going on. One of the things that he cited was he was citing that, um, you know, recently books condoning marital rape were found in an Islamic high school library in England. Um, Three Muslims shot and killed two Israeli officers not too long before the writing of that article and the triggering tensions were still outplaying today. And he asked the question, when you read such stories about Muslims, how does that make you feel about Islam? You know, lest we fall into the trap we talked about making it about they and not us, he continued and cited some other ones. A Christian in Israel that was accused of stabbing his daughter to death because she was dating a Muslim. A report released earlier that week that at least 547 members of this Catholic boys choir were sexually abused or physically abused between 1945 and 1992. Then he asked this question again, so what you felt about reading those news reflecting upon the of Islam. So it is the same when an unchristian world reads about Christians not holding uh, to the rightness of faith and participating in sin so that makes them feel those same thoughts about Christianity. Henry Blackaby uh, was quoted in the conclusion of the article and I thought it was good and so I figured I'd share it with you. What an incredible witness it is to a lost and fearful society when Christians act like children of God living under the loving sovereignty of the Heavenly Father. I think when we recognize that if sin is observed, and we recognize that sin isn't individual, but corporate, and it affects our witness, then if anything, what we've done in this first couple of verses, what the author has established for us, is he's established that we should take sin seriously. That this is a problem, and we should deal with the problem. So now what the author moves through and what we were going to continue to move through in the rest of this is looking now not just at the traits of sin, but now at the solution to sin. Because I know so often for me, um, it is, I think of sinlessness as the avoidance of sin. That If I just put enough effort and enough time and enough energy in not doing this, then I'll get to be sinless. But that's, a, that's a faltering thing, and we all learn this, even of us who took driver's education, right? Um, because in driver's education, what do they teach you to do? When you have an a obstacle in the road, do you look at the obstacle in the road? No, what happens when you look at the obstacle in the road? You tend to hit it, where do you look? You look at the path you're supposed to go. I probably didn't get that, um, and my parents' insurance bill reflects that I didn't get that concept as a teenager. But where I did get that concept was a little bit more um, in, into going off into college, because I liked mountain biking towards the end of my high school um, career, and, but I did all my mountain biking in Dallas, where I'm from, which, you know, is Dallas. And then I went to Arkansas, where it is Arkansas, and I found this whole other level of mountain biking that I wasn't even aware of, Some stuff so much more complicated, so much stuff that was so much more dangerous and hard to maneuver. And what I found is early on, um, when I was riding up there, uh, I, I constantly was hitting my knuckles and scraping my, my hands on trees. I was like, this is a weird problem. Who put this tree here? sense in my way. And, I, and my wife, my sweet wife, even brought me gloves because it was that bad. And she even noticed, like, you're not very good at this. Thanks, love. But then what what was really interesting is one day I got invited to go with some upperclassmen to go ride some trails, and I knew these guys. I knew they were really good. I knew I wasn't even at the same level of riding with them. And I got really anxious, right? Because here I am going to be the one not good at it, surrounded by people who are good at it. And I got nervous for my own kind of time in there and how I was going to reflect. So I, I chose to be in the back, as rightly so, maybe they wouldn't see me crash as often. For my own pride, I protected and served myself in the back. But then what I found is throughout the entire day, I didn't nick a single tree. I didn't crash once. I was like, and I had to ask myself, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference was I was looking, not at these trees to avoid, but I was looking at the guy in front of me and the path I needed to go. And that made all the difference for me is choosing where to focus your eye was choosing then where to go and then not choosing where not to go, but choosing where to go. So intuitive. What is intuitive in our physical lives is also should be intuitive in our spiritual lives. And this is the same solution that we have here. So continuing, let's look at verses 7 through about 16 and see what is our call? How is our response? Starting in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and what? Imitate their faith. Here's the first truth of the solution is that we are to imitate the faith of those who are getting it right. We need to imitate righteousness. And one of the ways that we find that is we find it by looking to the strength and the encouragement of those who are getting it right around us. We need to fix our eyes on somebody who's getting it right and learn from them. This is Christian discipleship. To maybe practically apply this, if you found yourself in feeling convicted of one of the sins of the first five verses and you thought, I really need to deal with that. Well, a good step to dealing with that is not just hiding and trying to think, I'll just pull myself up by the bootstraps and fix this. But maybe looking to the body of Christ as God has given us the body of Christ and saying, oh, you know what? I really do struggle with my financial security. Who do I know that's sitting in this room that I know they're doing well, but they don't seem encumbered like I do. Maybe I need to take that guy to coffee and ask him about things. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I really wish I could be more hospitable. I know a lot of hospitable people in this room. And if that's you, maybe you should connect with one of them. We should imitate each other. This is a gift. This is why our our lead pastor says, there's no lone wolf young guns. We're not, or as Thomas Merton put it, no man is an island. We're not supposed to do this alone. And one of the vessels of God's blessing and provision for us to tackle sin in our own lives is the body and others who are stronger than ourselves. Another way, so that was the first truth, imitating righteousness. I think the second one, uh, the second point of a truth of the solution is the call to eat grace at the cross. Now, I know this might be the strangest worded application point I've ever written. uh, And and forgive me, but I'm trying to draw upon even what the author is saying. And there's again, some arguments here that he's already touched on. Um, But in answering that question, well, where do you find that? Or what does that really even mean? Look down at verse nine when it says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So apparently in verse 9, a couple things are happening here. One is the correction of a false teaching that was going on in the day. It was prominent even in a Greek society that there were certain foods that you would feed yourself that would give you a certain level of godliness by the eating of some and the aversions of others, you attain godliness. And this was actually reflected also rightly into the Jewish faith, right? That they knew the participation of the law meant they did not eat things. They knew that the participation in the old covenant even meant that they did eat things, even things upon the altar, right? We got that from uh, even when they would take, partake in the peace offering. And so there was this Jewish teaching that was there that said, by what we eat, we enter into right communion with God. The problem is, is when you see the food as the source for the grace, then you've missed the picture. And that's what he is reminding here. He's, He's saying, do not be led astray by these false teachings. The heart is not strengthened by food, but by grace. In which, where do we have that grace? At the altar. And where is the altar? The foot of the cross. So I'd ask you in this, in response, are you spiritually starving yourself? Or are you finding where God is moving and saying, yes, I'll go and I'll be a part of that, thus feeding yourself? Are you going to choose to partake of grace in the cross? And then the last thing is the author continues to use this imagery, tying together the food, the altar, the cross, and the sacrifice. A lot of this is reminiscent to, again, chapter 10, things we've already talked about in study. He continues in verse 11, By saying, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go with him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is the final third point of the truth of sin is that we must allow suffering to squash our sins. The main call is to bear this approach as he has done it. This is reminiscent of Jesus saying, take up your cross daily. This is why James, in his first chapter of his books in verse 12, can say this about trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. May we not, may our prayer this morning, may we not be Christians who, at the sight of suffering, choose the contentment and the self-satisfaction that the world offers in fear of choosing suffering. But may we rightly see, as even John read from Philippians, as we rightly see Christ and his suffering as an extension of grace in himself to the world, may we participate in that so that sin is squelched and that so we are a better reflection and ministers of that grace to the world, pointing and reflecting back to Christ. You know, and I do think that there is a little bit of a a little bit of a where suffering kind of proves or is kind of the, the sign or the proving ground for your devotion, right? To so the level of pain and endurance you are going to do oftentimes reflects the level of devotion. It's a little bit graphic, but if you don't see it clearly, then uh, uh, here's an example. Just ask any dancer, right? Any ballerina. There's a level of suffering that proves our devotion. And so may we be Christians who rightly reflect a devotion to Christ even with suffering, and may that the witness to the world. So, in conclusion, pulling it all together, let us remember the severity of sin, that it's observable, that it's not individual, that it affects our witness, and let us take that severity, take that truth, hold fast to the truth that really we we don't find sinlessness by avoiding sins in our own merit but rather let us act on that truth, being desperate for the Holy Spirit to convict our lives and to show us how we can imitate others, how we can partake of the grace and extend the grace of the cross to others, and how we can participate even in things like his suffering for his glory and for the squashing of sin in our lives. And so that's, I think, our final call. And as we move into a time of imitation, as John comes back up and leads us here in a minute, may we, may you spend time even now reflecting upon God's words this morning and responding in the way that you see fit. Maybe it is the conviction that you need to find somebody who's doing this better and you need to go and you need to learn from them. Maybe it is that you really aren't taking sin seriously and you need to get this out. Maybe you need to be convicted of your witness to a point that causes you to desperation on Christ's provision in your life, to live the life he wants to give, which is a life abundant. Or maybe you're sitting in this room and you said, you know what, I don't know if I've ever accepted that first gift. I don't know if I get to put away sinlessness because I've never asked for a Savior to take away that sin. Then maybe today is the day of salvation. Or maybe you have uh, talked to Lance or, or one of the other on the team and said, you know what, I really want to uh, come together with this broken, dysfunctional family embodies of believers and do this whole figuring out, following Christ and not choosing sin with, not alone, but with some others. And if you want to come and profess that and join the church, then we can invite that at this time. But whatever it is, and whatever is your response, why don't you do the diligence with God?